Now let's get to it. Open your Bibles to Acts 27. I will confess to you, for years I have been scared of preaching Acts 27 because it's just a story. It's just a story. So what I would like to do, uh, and now I'm excited, so uh, no longer scared, but I would like to offer this up to you. Is we're going we're gonna to be um, reading about this terrible odyssey uh, that Paul has. Uh, Paul and Luke aboard a ship bound for Rome, which is a story, but the story itself is a pattern for how things are in our life. So I want to ask you, as we read through it, just to allow yourself to glean lessons if you could think in a metaphorical sense, this is the storms in Paul's life. Um, and then we can kind of begin to think, how is this true in our own life? That's, that's what I'm going to ask you to do as we, we, we go along through the story. But before we do that, I need you to put your pirate's hat on. I need to give you a little bit of sailing 101. Um, and I'm not a sailor. I'm a poser for a sailor. So I like this stuff, but I may not even be that right but it's better than nothing. So here we go. This picture you're going to see, that is a fairly accurate rendering of a Roman merchant vessel. Okay, so the ship of the time would have looked like that. Now, the one that's going to be in question in the story was probably a little larger because uh, they got pretty large. The one in the story has 276 persons on board. But what I want you to note here is the predominant main sail. It's got one major mast. The, the jib on the front, or it's not quite a jib, but the sail on the front was mostly for steering, but it was powered largely by the main sail and the square, uh, the one mast and the square sail. Now, this is a primitive design. It's not the kind of design that you think of when you think of pirate ships or the Napoleonic Wars or schooners or a sailboat you'd see in the Chesapeake. This was a primitive design and these ships had a very difficult time sailing into the wind. Very difficult sailing into the wind, okay? So they were much more at the mercy of the wind. Okay. That being said, something that was also primitive uh, during this time was navigation. There was no such thing as a compass. There was no such thing as a sextant. There was no such thing as an accurate chart. So most of the sailing done during this period of time, occurred within sight of the coast or in the sight of some land, some body of land. You would almost imagine 90% of sea travel during this period was hopping from one visual aid to another. So you might, you might extend for a day in blue water uh, with no shoreline, but the, the expectation was with the use of the sun, and maybe if you had a, a, a general grasp of the stars, even that was not common back then, you could kind of point your nose in the right direction, expecting to see a major body of land that you would recognize when you got there. That's how it was done. There was uh, very little hanging out in the wild blue water for very long. Additionally, the weather in the Mediterranean is an important. It's very seasonal. So if you've ever taken a cruise to the Med or you've gone there, it's, I'm, I imagine it was very pleasant 
It is not that way in the wintertime. In the wintertime, it's known for being erratically violent. And, and during the Roman period, the months of September and October were considered dangerous, the dangerous season to travel in the Mediterranean. And the months of November through March were considered undoable. So you were risking it if you traveled from September up towards November 1st. After that, you as a passenger could not expect to go into any port town and buy a ticket to get on a ship to go anywhere. Sea travel ceased in November. So if you weren't at your destination and November was coming on, you found that you were at your destination. And you held up there for the winter. That's what happened. And that's, you'll see this intent coming out of, of the story today. The winter was extremely dangerous. I went online last night and was Googling just to find uh, recent contemporary uh, reports from people sailing today. And they said exactly the same thing. They said, after November, by the time you're in October, just give up. One lady, she lived in her sailboat for 21 years, lived on the sea for 21 years, and the nine years she spent in the Mediterranean, those were the only winners she ever had to winter on land because of how violent it was. Okay. One more set of terms, and then we'll get going. There's a term, windward and leeward, that I want you to understand. Windward is upwind of something. So if, you're, if the winds are coming from my right, if the winds are coming from over there, I am windward of the piano. Does that make sense? Okay, first, first hour we had to do this a couple times. Likewise, leeward is downwind. Okay, so if the winds are coming from over there, I am, I'm on the lee side of this monitor. Is that, okay, a way to understand it or appreciate it for, for ships is, you remember like Toy Story uh, 3 when all the animals are running on the conveyor belt and there's the big chomper? The big chomper's getting ready. It, it shows up in all sorts of movies, the conveyor belt chomper scene, right? Where they're running, but they're pretty much staying in place. And down conveyor belt of them is a chomper. That's how it would feel during this age to be in a storm with a shore to the lee of you. The wind would be pushing you towards the land to destroy your ship, and you'd be doing everything you could to fight. To have, they say, you know, to have land on the, to your leeward in a squall is a terrible, terrible thing. There's, I'm sure there's some saying that I'm getting wrong, but that's true. Okay, so what you'll see in the story is when they're going to they're talk about how the sailing was difficult. And then they're going to say, as a result of this, we had to pass to the lee of an island. And you need to hear that as it was a concession because it was dangerous. Because of the winds, which during this season, you can go to the map, Jim, if you want. Here's a map of the Mediterranean and this is going to plot this course, and you can leave this up for, well, as much as you want, I guess, the whole. You see Cyprus up there in the top right-hand corner of the map. It looks kind of like a, an arrow pointing to the top right. They're going to try to go cut diagonally from Sidon straight up to Myra, but they're going to be unable to do that. And you see how much longer their path is going to be? Because the winds are coming from the west, the winds are coming, so they're going to pass to the lee of Cyprus. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Because you're going to hear it, and what I, I want the words to come in and mean something for you. I don't want you just to be like, whatever, sailor talk. 
I want you to, I want it to make sense to you. Okay. So with that said, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get reading. Let me read uh, the first eight verses. Now, Paul, just to get you up to speed, Paul has been a prisoner for over two years in Caesarea, which is part of uh, Palestine. But King Herod and the governor have found him innocent. In fact, they said, if had he not appealed to Caesar, we would have let him go. But he has appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he will go. So he's now boarding a ship under guard to be taken to Rome to appeal before Caesar, even though he's guilty of no crime. All right, 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Let me stop there real quick. Notice it said, and when it was decided that we should sail. So it means it's not Paul on the boat only. It's Luke, his companion, the author of this book. As well as other prisoners. Verse 2. And embarking in a ship of Andromentium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. There it is. Because the winds were against us. Now you know why. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. Okay, it's up there on the map. There was a centurion, excuse me, there the centurion found, found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Okay, let me stop there. The city of Rome, you can see the boot of Italy in the top left, or right, left of your map. The city of Rome, the great eternal city of Rome, was fed by the fields of Alexandria. They didn't have nearly enough farmland around Rome to feed Rome. And so the wheat and the grain and all of that, the preponderance of that that poured into the city of Rome came out of cargo ships from Alexandria, which is exactly one of these sorts of ships. You'll read in the 27th chapter at the very end, they're going to finally throw all of the wheat overboard. All of the grain is going to be jettisoned by the end of the story. Because it's a grain ship coming out of Alexandria. It was such an important mission of the Roman Empire that that circuit of shipping actually fell underneath the Department of State. It was that significant to them. And this is the kind of ship that Paul and Luke and the other prisoners are boarding because it's, of course, bound for Rome. Okay, verse 7. Listen to the fatigue of the sailing. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Casting along it, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So if you look up there on the map, if you're trying to go to Rome, which is west central Italy, you can obviously see the last place you would want to go is to the south side of Crete, to the lee of Crete. But because the winds are coming predominantly out of the west and also out of the north, they had to yield that territory because they didn't want to be on the dangerous side of Crete and get pushed into the land. Does that make sense? 
So now they're kind of scratching and clawing to hold on to the last significant island in the Mediterranean before Africa. That's the feeling they're in, is if they get pushed any far south, any farther south, they're in wide open ocean with nothing to hold on to. And this is how the story begins. I want to read 9 through 12. And, uh, and then we'll stop there. Look, look at this. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. The fast there is the Day of Atonement, which happens in October. In fact, this year, it was October 5th, in the year of this account. So Paul is saying right here, we were already deep into the dangerous season. We're almost to November. We're almost to that moment where there's, you can't go any farther for the winter. Okay, that's what he's saying. So since that had happened, it says, Paul advised them, in verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out from, to sea from there on chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both the southwest and the northwest, and spend the winter there. If you look on the map, you see Phoenix right up there. That's where we think Phoenix is. It's about 37 or 40 miles. So this is, this, um, it's important that you, you appreciate this because the first several times I read it, I thought Paul saying, let's not leave, and the pilot and the owner of the ship are saying, no, we can go. They're not saying that. They are not, the pilot of the ship and the owner of the ship are not behaving irresponsibly here. This isn't as though like Paul's know-it-all or that he has this seaman's ability about him. I don't think that's it. It's the difference of the owner of the vessel and the pilot of the vessel fear for the ship in this small port. They say it's not suitable to put, leave this ship in this port. It could get smashed to pieces here. It's facing the wrong direction. We don't have a safe place. Their thought is, if we could just get a break in the weather for a couple of days, we could go a little farther west and catch Phoenix, and there we can sit for the winter. They're not trying to get to Rome. They don't, they're, not, they're not arrogant or reckless. They're trying to do what the wisdom of the world would say is the wise thing to do. There's no sinful motive here. This is professional seamen whose entire life is invested in the owner and the pilot of the boat. Their whole life is invested in this ship, trying to care for the ship. And yet Paul gets up and says, I perceive this is not going to go well. I mean, I'm no sailor, but I got this hunch I think that's what it is. It's a hunch. Let's call it a holy hunch. A little later on in the story, when things go south, literally, they go south, Paul will say to them, I told you this wasn't a good idea, but the Lord has spoken to me. So a little later on in the story, he's going to hearken back to this moment in light of a godly conversation, as though it's it was part of this experience, as though God was at work. It's this, this holy hunch. And I want to say this. I don't want to belabor this, I don't, but I don't want to miss this. 
that in this world, most, most of the day, most of the time, you and I are operating on worldly wisdom. It's not evil. It doesn't have bad motive. It's, it works. It's worldly wisdom. It's, you know, penny saved is a penny earned. It's those sorts of things. And I'm here to say they're fine, but they cannot see tomorrow. And a little holy hunch is better than all the wisdom of the world sometimes. I mean, there's just some times where in you, ah, it just doesn't feel. And I think this is one of these moments. But they don't listen. And why would you expect them to? You would expect men of the world to obey to the wisdom of the world. At best, that would be the best you would expect. And so they make the decision. If the weather breaks, we're going to make a go for it. Okay, verse 13. When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. You know what the Greek is there for tempestuous? Typhonikos. Typhonikos. Is that cool? Well, not for them, but typhoon struck down from the land verse 15 and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind we gave way to it and were driven along they can't fight to stay close to the shore so they have to pay off and, and, and fall south because of the wind is what it's saying Running along in 16, under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. It, it, it's funny that Luke says, we managed with difficulty. It gives you the impression that Luke himself, that the crew of the ship was saying, all hands on deck, and that the physician Luke was heaving on the cable to draw this boat in. You can imagine they had a boat they would pull behind them. That was by tradition. Gives you more room on the deck. But when the storm hit, they didn't even have time to get it in. So they fall behind an island that's a windbreaker for briefly, and then they haul in this boat. 17. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. That is, what they would do is they would grab their cables or their hawsers or their ropes or whatever you want to call them, and they would wrap the ship in the bow and in the midship and in the stern. They would wrap the ship and tighten the ropes down because these ships, with one mast, all of the stress on that mast and all of the torque on the ship because of the waves would open up the planks and let water in. And so they would batten down, they would, with, with large ropes, they would tighten the hole down. Imagine just kind of giving a child a real tight hug. They would do that to the hull of the ship to hold it so that it, it wouldn't get twisted and broken apart in the waves. That's what they're saying they did. I want you to feel the severity of the moment here. Then, fearing that we would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear. You look on the map, you see the bottom, you see Sirtis Major. It's the Bay of Libya. You see that? It was infamous for these sandbars, shallow sandbars. It was a graveyard for ships that had gone adrift in the winter. So here's this, this squall that's whipped up, this nor'easter that's pushing them, and they begin to fear, dear God, we're going to get stuck on some sandbar out in the middle of the ocean, and we're going to perish there. So what they do, it appears is what they do is they grab 
It says they took the gear to slow them down. Scholars think they grabbed the sail off the ship, took it down, and turned it into a sea anchor, like a balloon under the water. It parachuted under the water. and released. In other words, the ship's not even sailing anymore. They're just trying to slow down their southerly descent. And thus we were driven along. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, right? To keep afloat, they're throwing the cargo. Remember, the ship is heavy laden with grain, so they're throwing cargo off the ship in verse 18. And then it says, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. The ship's tackle, that's all the stuff, the ropes and cables and sails and the yard arms and the things you hang sails from, that's all the stuff you use to sail. Luke says, with their own hands, which is an ironic statement because whose hands would you use? I think what he's saying, he's expressing the dramatic feeling of a sailor throwing his own sailing equipment off the ship. Like, would you believe they'd have done that? In other words, by the time you're in the end of 19, this ship is no longer a sailing ship. It's a storm-tossed hull of a boat that is adrift in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Do you see the progression? It was really difficult to get the little ship in. Next thing you know, we're undergirding the ship and then we're throwing a cargo overboard. Then we're throwing tackle overboard. Everything, everything we're doing is sea anchors. It's going south. It's, it's literally going from bad to worse. Until, until it gets to a point where all hope of their ever being saved had been abandoned. No hope. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Paul says, all hope of our being saved. Makes me think that Luke and Paul had also lost hope. He didn't say, and all hope of their being saved was lost. I don't want to stop here for a second. I just want to, I want to point at something, which is, you know, we have, uh, if you can imagine, right, this storm of their life, but if you can imagine for a second our lives, we have all of these things around us that make us feel like we're in control. The tackle on the ship, equipment, methods of navigation, wisdom of the world, ports, all of these things. We have these things that give us the semblance of control, but we are not in control. Control is a myth. It is an absolute myth. The Lord, with a tiny puff of his breath, could typhonicus us, and you could be unmoored and adrift from everything you know to be that you used to rely on in security. I'm saying for most of our life, we put around and we can see the shore. We put around on fair weather days and we can see the shore. But I'm saying the Lord, the, obviously it's the Lord doing it. He controls the wind and the waves. He is the wind. Numa, the Greek for wind, he is it. This is a story about the power of the Spirit, that the Lord has blown Paul and this crew of sailors Way off course, 
to the place where they have no hope. In fact, the storm is such that it is progressively debilitating. So that, you notice, all through 13, there's things they could do. They were things they could do. Grab in the ship, undergird the ship, bring down the tackle, throw this overboard. There's all these things. It's the semblance of control. Like even in crisis, the feeling that we're in control still gives us hope. At last, there's nothing left that they can do. Nothing left in the 20th verse. There's nothing but get hungry and die. This next verse is Paul looked around and saw they were getting hungry. It's, hunger is something that sets in when you're done working. When you are just shipwrecked. And I'm here to say, despite all we think every day, and I, I live the myth, we live the myth, we live a myth of control, and the reality is we are not in control. And it, may, it will probably not be this brilliant or colorful or epic when we lose control, but you, you can wake up in a hospital bed and realize you're not in control. You can wake up one morning and stand in an unemployment line from a job that gave you meaning. And you're not in control. I mean, some of us can still remember 2008. People were humbled. You can do everything right to raise a kid well and realize you are not in control. I mean, you can say to the Lord, you could plead to the Lord on your knees in tears. I did this, I did this, Lord, I've done this. I've, you've jettisoned all the cargo in your life, all your dreams you've pitched out the window. You've done this, you've done this, and they're adrift, and you can't do anything about it. Because you're not in control. You can stand there as a spouse walks away. Marriage ends, and there's nothing you can do. It's the starting point of the story is, listen, it's the Lord bringing the ship to a place to say, listen, the only way you will believe that you're not in control is if I place you in a circumstance where you have nothing left. And then he shows up, 21. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. See, this makes me think Paul was nervous and it was losing hope like everybody else. Why would the angel need to show up and say, don't be afraid? Why would the angel need to show up and remind Paul of the very words of God that the Lord had declared over him? That he will be his witness to Caesar in Rome. Paul knew it. Paul testified. We've, we've talked about it. We've talked about how Paul knew in his heart that he had to go to Rome and that he was going to go to Rome. But somehow the angel needs, I'm just saying, we're human. And we find ourselves in these, these hopeless moments with other people in our life. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I, I have been told 
but we must run aground on some island. So you see, there's a beautiful moment here. The Lord says to Paul, don't be afraid, Paul. I told you you'd be a witness to Caesar. He says, and I've granted to you, on account of you, Paul, I'm going to save the ship. That's special. In our life, we may, at times, find ourselves cast away like this. Or something much less than this, but it will still feel like you're cast away. And my first hope would be that when you feel like all hope is lost, that the Lord would visit you. Even if it's not an angel, if it's at least a word. A word to say to the Christian, get your chin up because you have hope. Because what Christian does not have hope? Or what Christian does not have hope? I mean, my, my heart and my desire would be that each one of us in our lowest moments, that the right person would come with the right, with the right tenor and the right tone and the right heart to say the right words. Because you know how when you're there, you can barely hear anything. You're so despondent. My hope and my prayer would be that, Lord, in that moment, would you send the right person to them to speak the right word to say, you are not without hope. And not only that, you can't, you have to see the purpose. You have to see that God is saving the ship because Paul's with them. That Paul, the good Lord didn't just encourage Paul, that Paul, after being encouraged, stands up among the men and says, be of good heart, men. Do not be afraid because my God who is great has said this to me. We will all survive. This, this is... This is what you and I are called to do in this life. I'm I'm saying in our life, you will find yourself in various hardships in around you on the same ship as you, if you want to call it that, in the same situation as you, is going to be a whole bunch of other people who are actually without hope, who actually do not have legitimate hope. All of their hope was lock, stock, and barrel tied to the myth of control. And so when that's peeled away, they are literally without hope. And you are the only person among them. You may be the only person among them to stand up and say, be of good cheer. For I worship a God of a promise that is full of hope. Is, I mean, is the message of Jesus Christ just for us? How did it get to us? Notice Paul did not volunteer for this cruise. He didn't say, oh, that ship's going to be bound for doom. I'm going to go on that. We don't volunteer for these things. I will never volunteer for like obvious tragedy like that. That's not what I'm saying. But much of our missionary work is involuntary. In other words, while I do not want the Lord to do this to me, I do want him to do it to you. Or at least I think you can understand. While we collectively do not want the Lord to do it to us, we also collectively worship a God who has his will despite what we want. Because we know, we know that there are many people, many ships adrift and afloat in this world who do not have any hope on them at all. 
And if it means that God has to place us in an acute moment of affliction so that we can stand up and boast of his glories and his goodness, then so be it. Then God's will be done. I think we can at least, in this, in this calm environment, say, Lord, academically, I can assent and worship to you to know that you'll do the right thing by me when the day comes because I have hope, but I don't want it to happen. But when it happens, send me a word of peace that makes me stand and boast of your love. All right. I mean, do you realize how much of your missionary work is involuntary in this life? I mean, I hope one day when I'm in, in, a, in a hospital room, I hope I see the person in that bed as on my ship. That's what I hope or wherever it happens to be, stuck in an elevator, stuck in a plane. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Okay, what time is it? Midnight. If you're going to make land, you don't want to make it at midnight. This is bad news. Midnight, you can't see. This is the sailor's ears. You know, do they hear a bird? <laughs> What's going on? It's that, oh, you can imagine their gut getting twisted. This is not good. The ship is floating towards land, and we can't even see it. 28, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, confirming their nightmare. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchor anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. See, there are no atheists in shipwrecks. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, you see this? As seeking to escape from the ship and lowered the ship's boats into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors for the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boats and let them go. Do you see what was happening? The sailors were getting out of dodge. The sailors were saying, our, our chances are better in a little boat coming into the land than in this big hole of a ship with no sail. And so they were abandoning the ship and the other hundreds of people on board. They were abandoning the ship and Paul sees it points it out, and says, if they leave, we're done. Now, I want to talk about human nature, but I, I don't want us to miss the... By this point, who's in charge of the ship? Man. Isn't Paul a prisoner? I mean, he has just risen. This... He's rising to this prominent position. This is, this is a prayer, right? This is, Lord, Lord, the day that I find myself with the myth of control ripped away and I am hopeless, send me a word. Send me a word that makes me rise. Reminds me of your joy. Reminds me of your grace. Reminds me of the hope I have in you. And reminds me that this hope doesn't belong to me. And then you, you see, you see God's way, how God takes a man like that and elevates him to, elevates him to command. 
I'm not saying he's really in charge. I'm saying, do you notice how a prisoner on the boat is now saying to the centurion, if you don't do that, we're going down. And the centurion says, cut, cut the boats away. A little bit later, he's going to say, let's eat. I mean, who, who gave him that authority? I just want to encourage you that in our faithfulness, the world will give us referent authority, and God will give us, God, it'll be God will give us, bestow upon us referent influence among the people with whom we live so that we can say things that matter. In other words, people would begin to trust that we actually care for their lives versus human nature. Human nature is these sailors, right? So control gets ripped away because it is just a myth. It gets ripped away and everybody's hopeless. And then they hear land and what happens? Like white knuckles, they grab onto these ideas like maybe I can salvage. You notice that's how we are. The lesson learned of I'm not in control lasts about three seconds. You lose your job, I'm not in control. You get your job, I'm back in control. I got it. Right? You lose your marriage, I'm not in control. Oh, look at her. I'm back in. There's this unbelievable ability for us to forget how sovereign God really is in our life. And when we are forgetful, when we behave like forgetful people, we behave like these sailors. We do things on the backs of others because we're fighting for ourselves rather than trusting in the Lord. The man of God stands here and he's thinking of everyone. Okay, last reading. And uh, we'll close, but I really want you to see this. 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Notice it's not the day. It's the day was about to dawn. It's still dark. In other words, nobody's seen land, and their situation is still dire. Paul is speaking out of the darkness. 34, there I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. Now, I just want you to listen to these words. And if you've got to close your eyes just to hear them, right? close them, listen. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. What does that sound like to you? Lord's Supper. I don't know if it's the Lord's Supper. I mean, I think it would be wrong of me to say, oh, it's the Lord's Supper. But I think, how can Luke, the writer of this, not grin when he wrote that? If you go back to Luke 14, of his same pen, same language, same grammar. In other words, maybe it wasn't the Lord's Supper for the ship. But I can't imagine how it wasn't communion for some of them. And I just, I want, to point, I want to point this out to you because this is the manner in which you and I share the Lord's Supper every time we do. We share it in the dark with expectancy of the rising sun. That's what we do. This is our plight on earth is we're traveling and we take the Lord's Supper with great expectancy of what he will do. We feed on him because we believe we will live tomorrow. That's what the Lord's Supper is. I mean, it just can't fall in a more beautiful and poetic. It is just 
to be a real story is, is, is icing on the cake because it is just so beautiful how this lands and how it should land in our life that we don't take the Lord's Supper because we are actually victorious right now in all the ways we like to imagine. We take it because God has said from his own mouth what he will do and we believe and expect it to happen. And he shares. He shares this confidence and this care with all. You see how Paul throughout the whole story is sharing his hope? He's sharing his hope with others, saying, God has approached me and is giving me hope, and so I want to give it to you. And then he sees people behaving frantically, and he says, look, that is not, look at everyone on the ship. If they do that, the ship will perish. What about the ship? He's, he's caring. He's caring. Men, eat. Strengthen yourselves for tomorrow, because you're going to have to swim. It's my hope this morning, and, and I'll close this in prayer, but it's my hope this morning that when the Lord strips control away from you, you don't adopt the perspective that he is not with you. Because the reality is, is he's the one who just did it. I mean, look where the boat lands, Malta. Can you, you, how do you hit that island? It's a big lake. I mean, what it turns out, the irony of the whole thing is, they think they're out in the middle of nowhere. They think that everything's perishing. They think that they're going to squander and die. And the reality is the Lord is whisking him towards Rome at top speed when no one else is even traveling. He's on, he's on the red eye. Do you see, we lose control, but we do not lose God. And when we are out of control... We are still with God and we are still with hope. And I want to challenge, I just want to challenge you in your life. Are you in situations where people around you, I know it's not this, but there's a zillion lesser versions of this in your workplace and among your neighbors and colleagues and friends where are you migrating into their sullen, decayed, hopeless attitude? Or are you standing up? Do you have a heart that stands up, that is excited about what God has said, about who he is? Do you think maybe you're the only point of light on that dark ship? And that God put you there for a reason? So that maybe not a hair on anyone's head would be lost. Wouldn't that be great if we could say that one day, one day when when the Lord looks down at the ship of fools that I traveled with, and, and they're all in glory with me. And they said, not a hair on their head was harmed. They are all with you. Whoa, that would be good. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess to you our tendency to equate our loss of control with your absence, which is wrong, Lord. Your spirit blows. And sometimes, Lord, for our own good so that we can see it, you blow us off course Lord, I pray this morning that we would be faithful, cheerful ambassadors to people in need to whisper to them hope or that you would send someone like that to us when we are without hope. And Lord, I pray that we would be courageous enough to rise up and share the cheer of the gospel. It is good news. Because Lord, we know that it is not your desire that any would perish, but that all would come to know. Place us, Lord. Have thy will. 
place us among these ships so that we might be a light. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.